Chasing Ransomware Criminals, Deconstructing an Apple Bug, and Microsoft Edge on Linux. All that and more, it's the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Doug. He is Paul. And Paul, I'd like to start the show with a big shout out to listener Norbert, who answered my call for help last week, as some of you may recall. I had a weird issue where my mouse was kind of hopping all over the screen each time I woke my computer up from standby. And Norbert correctly guessed I had a Dell computer, and what's more, gave me three kind of sort of obscure BIOS settings to toggle off, all of them having to do with power management, and it worked! So a huge thank you to Norbert. I am a happy camper when waking my computer from sleep, but Paul, I, th- I still may take your advice and just shut down my computer, especially at the end of the day. Why not? Yes, let it sleep fully and soundly. Computers don't need to dream of electric sheep, Doug. They do not, especially this one. It boots so quickly. And um, we'd like to begin the show with a fun fact. And this is a fun fact, a blast from the past. The term worm, as in computer worm, was coined in John Brunner's 1975 novel, The Shockwave Rider. In the novel, a character named Nicholas Hafflinger designs and sets off a data-gathering worm in an act of revenge against the powerful men who run a national electronic information web that induces mass conformity. How did they know? How prescient? How did they know that this would be happening in our days? This is way the back thing they got wrong is it doesn't seem that our web is leading to very much conformity. No, it's... <laughs> see, <laughs> it's, more like, it's a different sort of dystopia, isn't yeah. it? It's like, <laughs> exactly. hey, how many opinions oh. can five people have on 12 topics? Yeah. Every time I go into a, a second-hand bookshop that has an old technology or sci-fi book section, I want to try and find a genuine old copy of that book and buy it. Okay, we know what uh, Paul is looking for in his holiday gift list, if anyone comes across that book (laughs) in an obscure bookstore. As long as there are no pages missing, and as long as someone hasn't written their own copious notes in it to help me understand it, those are the biggest air quotes I've ever used on the podcast, Doug. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to get an original edition. Excellent. Okay, well, everyone be on the lookout for that. And let us shift gears and talk about ransomware criminals. We get a matter-of-fact listing. This is my favorite part of the article. We'll talk about this. A matter-of-fact listing of cybercriminal job descriptions from Europol here, Paul. Yes, they, well, they didn't, they carefully didn't use the word arrest or charge. And whether that's because the countries involved, which were Ukraine and Switzerland, don't follow the exact same order, procedural order that that is common in, say, the UK or the US. But it seems that people haven't been arrested, although 12 people were spoken to. More air quotes. Nice way of saying interrogated. And as you say, the way they're telling this story is it looks as though their real interest here was forensic intelligence gathering. So they said, yeah, we got $52,000 in cash. That's nice. We got five luxury vehicles, which I'm sure have in-car entertainment systems, probably running something like Android. So they're probably more interested in the phone that's in the car than the car itself and a whole load of other stuff that we've seized to look at. And it seems that these people aren't the ones that actually write the malware and do the core of the ransomware as a service thing. They're crooks who do network penetration. We'll get you in in the first place. Lateral movement. 
wander around the network uh, for a while, trying to find out what's going on, build a better map of the network than you have yourself. Then there's the ransomware detonation part. And then afterwards, there's the sort of post-exploitation phase, which is still sadly an important part of cybercrime, and that's the money laundering phase. So it seems that different people in the ransomware as a service scene have different niche jobs. What we've referred to in the past as the attack chain or the kill chain, depending on whether you're the one doing it or the one trying to head it off at the pass. It's quite intriguing. It's not just, hey, we caught this guy for writing malware and now we're going to charge him with that. It's we're trying to dig into the whole ransomware as a service scene. Yeah, it's run like a and business. It's, it's like general business roles here. Yes. You know, we've spoken before, haven't we, about when Revil put a million dollars in cash, allegedly, into a sort of fighting fund on an underground forum. This is there for the taking. You bring your expertise. And we're looking for particular skills. Like, we really, really want people who are good with backup software, but have the kind of ethics that will allow them to use their knowledge for bad. <laughs> yeah. In other words, make sure that you don't have any backups rather than you do have backups. And if there are backups, that they actually belong to the crooks. So they've automatically made off with your data at the same time. So it'll be interesting to see how this pans out, Doug. Will they get further into, the, into this part of the cyber underworld? Watch with interest. And perhaps missing from this list is the job role of communications director. If ever you wanted to hear what it sounds like to be called by someone who has hit you with ransomware, there oh is boy. a three-minute embedded voicemail in this article that is, let's say, borderline chilling in how business-like the, uh, the, the, the voicemail is. Yes, this comes from the Sophos Rapid Response Team who were called into an engagement of someone who was in the middle, as understand it, of, a, of an attack by the gang known as SunCrypt. This is a voicemail that was uploaded to them. So we've converted that audio. We, we put on Naked Security as a video with subtitles, nice big subtitles, because uh, the accent might be a little unfamiliar. If you don't speak English at home, you might struggle to understand some of it. But you won't struggle to understand what they're trying to tell you if if the negotiations don't work out let's tell you what's going to happen <laughs> and it's quite a laundry list isn't it of, of things they plan to do to you it is and the um automatically generated uh, youtube thumbnail perfectly encapsulates the the way that the message is delivered and the it managed to grab the uh, the subtitle anyway this will be the last day of your business which is kind of how the guy talks. He's like, you know, think about your families. Call me back. It's almost like, you know, if we do unleash all this stuff, if we do tell the media, if we do tell your partners, your competitors, your government, the regulator, all of that stuff, actually, yeah, you probably don't need to worry because it's the end. Yeah. It's like he's <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing. It's, reading off a script. It's, it's just chilling. It, it sounds just, like someone from a call center almost. Well, I suppose maybe that's what it said in the job description. Yeah. <laughs> And the thing about that audio is you can find more where that came from in a fantastic article on Naked Security sister site, Sophos News, written by Peter McKenzie, one of our top threat responders. The title says it all. 
the top 10 ways ransomware operators ramp up the pressure to pay. That audio gives several of them. This is what we will do if we don't reach an agreement. It is not just that they've scrambled your files and not just that they've stolen all your data and threatening to extort it. And he's got some pictures. This came from an actual attack where the crooks obviously figured, you know what, the best way to get the company agitated and to get people inside the company demanding that their bosses pay up is to make everyone aware of just how bad this is. And of course, the crooks have mapped out the whole network. So they didn't just put the ransom note on everyone's wallpaper. They printed it out. Yeah. Oh, my God. On every printer on the network, <laughs> including payment terminals, point of sale terminals. So can you imagine you're a customer and you're going in, oh, can I have a coffee, please? And they print the receipt. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it doesn't make a very good impression, does it? No. When actually what you hand over is your files encrypted.html, <laughs> whatever it was. Oh. Well, that article is called Europol Announces Targeting of 12 Suspects and Ransomware Attacks. That's on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And that links to the aforementioned top 10 ways ransomware operators ramp up the pressure to pay on news.sophos.com. And now yes. let's, we're going to talk about uh, an Apple bug. This is interesting. An Apple bug discovered and explained thoroughly by a Microsoft researcher. Who would have thought? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I don't think there's anything weird or unusual in that. Google have their own bug hunting team. They call theirs Project Zero, and they regularly look for and find bugs in other large vendors and small vendors' code. And in this case, it was uh, someone in Microsoft who happened to be looking into the command shell. So it's called Shrewtless. It's not really totally about the shell. It's more about a story about the system integrity. Yes, the sh at the start is short for shell. And in this case, it's Z shell, which is Apple's standard shell. If you use Linux, you're probably familiar with Bash. Apple used to use Bash. Uh, a few years ago, they switched to Z shell, but they all end with SH. So sh means shell script. And rootless, it's a strange name. That is Apple's cool and funky name for a feature better known as SIP, System Integrity Protection. And it's a feature that Apple has had in its operating system for a while. On a Mac, there are some things that even the all-powerful root account can't do. And that includes things like installing unsigned kernel drivers, changing boot time configuration settings that could turn off security. So Apple has a, a part of the system that runs code where even being root isn't enough. You can imagine that the problem with a lockdown that strong, for example, protecting the important system directories, is that what happens when you want to download an operating system update? You kind of want to install it with the same ease and simplicity as you would install any software package that didn't reconfigure the system. So this SIP or rootless component has a special background process, a Unix daemon, that launches install scripts or package scripts, Apple package scripts, that are digitally signed by Apple in a way that allow them to bypass this rootless protection. So they let the root account 
do things that even the root account wouldn't normally do. Hmm. Unfortunately, because package files can themselves include shell scripts, and because an important thing in any package is all the things that you need to set up afterwards, Apple PKG or package files, this is common on many Linux package formats as well, include a component called the post install script, which is a shell script that can be run after the package is installed. For example, oh, let's clean up this. Let's move that. Let's change this directory name to that. Let's add an icon here. Let's change this setting. And so the rootless part of the operating system runs this post install script using the Z shell program. But unfortunately, it references the Z shell configuration files that are writable and changeable by the root account. So basically, you've got a super secure process running a super secure script under the control of configuration files that are not super secure at all. And that is the heart of the shirutless bug. So it's not just an elevation of privilege. It's what you might call an uber elevation of privilege. This is the elevator that has the secret button that takes you to the hidden floor, the penthouse right at the very top of the building, unfortunately. Yikes. Okay, so what could people do to avoid such malfeasance? Well, the most obvious thing is make sure you have Apple's latest updates. Microsoft didn't write this up until after Apple had shipped the updates. And so you're looking for updates, whether you are running Catalina, which is Mac OS 10, Big Sur, Mac OS 11, or Monterey, the brand new Mac OS 12. And the good news is when Monterey, that Mac OS 12, when that shipped to the public, it actually came out essentially in 12.0.1 format with a whole load of security patches that had obviously been added in while the product was in beta. Because if you don't fix this, it does mean that somebody who really isn't supposed to be able to subvert an Apple security upgrade could do just that. can also learn our configuration files. I think the most important general lesson here is that on Unix and Linux, and for that matter, Windows systems, there are an awful lot of not exactly secret, but not necessarily well-documented and definitely not well-known configuration files, settings, tweaks, and fiddly bits that alter the behavior of core system components. So particularly if you're a Windows person who's now moving to Linux, so you've got a, a you know, you're going for a lot of cloud Linux servers these days. When you were cutting your teeth as a Windows sysadmin, you probably spent days, weeks, months, years trying to plumb the depths and span the breadths of the Windows registry. You know, who hasn't looked in the Windows registry and boggled at all the configuration settings that, golly, who knew you could do that? It's crazy in there, yeah. Yeah, on Unix and Linux systems, it's kind of very similar. If you've got a Mac, for example, go and look in the slash etc, the slash etsy directory, and look at all the myriad of configuration files and configuration directories in there. For example, that's where the Z shell configuration files are. And just Z shell alone, just in the slash etsy directory, there's a file called zedgenv, Z profile, 
ZRC, Z login, and Z log out. And each and every one of those can alter the behavior of the thing that processes command scripts for you every time it runs. That's just for one shell script program. SSH, for example, has a whole directory, slash Etsy, slash SSH, with a whole load of configuration files in there, both of the client and the server. As we often say, cybersecurity is a journey, not a destination. And part of that journey is that there's always one more configuration file that you could learn about. Because A, it could make your life really easy one day by helping you solve a problem without having to do any deep and dangerous hacking. And B, if it can fix things for you, it can make problems as far as the crooks are concerned. So never stop learning about the many different ways that you can configure things like applications, services, daemons on Unix or Linux systems. And then we've got code for simplicity. If you're a programmer, this is applicable to you. Yes, make sure that you have an easy way for your program to run with all its implicit dependencies, all its implicit configuration settings turned off. That way, everything the programmer wants your code to do, they will have to state explicitly themselves. Although that makes it slightly more complicated, it means they should never get an unexpected surprise. Oh, I never thought that you put an slash Etsy slash fruit slash yellow fruit slash slightly curved slash <laughs> it's a banana dot conf. I never thought that you'd look in that file. So make sure there's an easy way that your code won't look in these perhaps documented, but perhaps also not very well known files so that any programmer using your code really has to say what they mean. All right. That is Microsoft Documents Shrootless Hack, patched in latest Apple updates on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. It is time for This Week in Tech History, and this week, on November 2nd, 1988, the Morris Worm was one of the first computer worms distributed via the internet, and the first... Nicely done, Doug. I was yes. wondering why you'd introduced worms and viruses at the start. Yes, they're all related. The early this... mention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not... 33 years, eh? Yeah, this was the years. first worm to gain significant mainstream media attention, and it also resulted in the first felony conviction in the U.S. under the 1986 Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. It was written by a graduate student at Cornell University, Robert Tappan Morris, and launched from the computer systems of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And uh, I don't have this in my notes, but I did read further on that he did that to try to obfuscate, to make it seem like it came from someone at MIT, even though he was at Cornell, and then later he became a professor at MIT many years later. So <laughs> water under the bridge, as they say. You know what's fantastic with hindsight about the, the Morris worm, Doug? That we immediately learned three important lessons because of how he programmed that worm to spread. Three mistakes that no one ever made subsequently and how much more secure the world got Doug. so the first <laughs> way it broke in weak passwords like, oh who would have a weak password these days exactly he had a list he had a list of about 400 passwords in there the two that spring to mind were wombat which i just thought was a strange <laughs> password for anybody to have maybe not if you're from australia and if i remember correctly zimmerman was at the end of the list okay i can only assume that 
because that's before Phil Zimmerman of pretty good privacy. So I can only as assume that that's referring to the Zimmerman telegram, which was a you know an infamous cryptographic daring do story from the First World War involving Germany, the U.S. and Mexico. Fascinating story. Hmm. So weak passwords. We learned that lesson immediately, didn't we? Of course, uh, yes. The, the next trick it used was buffer overflow leading to remote code execution in system service. Oh, that's uh, what, we never see those. Never, ever happened again. Mm -hmm. uh, and the last one was misconfigured system service. Oh, no problem today. In, in the Morris Worms case, it was people who had installed the send mail program, which was a, how many universities would receive mail at the time. Still exists, still very widely used. And SendMail had a debug setting you could use that left it utterly insecure. It was so that while you were setting up a system, you could fix it as you went along. It actually allowed you to send a special sort of email where the contents of the email was a shell script to run. Wow. So it wasn't just remote code execution hack. It was like remote code execution by design. Of course, you were never supposed to have that option enabled in a production build that you installed on a real server, and loads of people did. Fortunately, ever since 1988, nobody has ever misconfigured a system server or a system service ever since. Exactly. So we've done a lot of great work over the past 33 years, and we fixed all these problems. Good. This is the one time that we don't need an irony warning buzzer. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, sir. Oh, dear. To be fair, Doug, we have got a lot better at at least some of those things. Yes, that's so good. Remote code execution through buffer overflows. It's not quite as easy as it was back then. Sadly, it's still not impossible. Mm -hmm. And if we stick with irony, let's talk about our next story. Microsoft Edge on Linux. Some people are happy, others are ambivalent, and some people are unhappy. But it's here, officially Ooh, I here. I don't think any, no one who commented was ambivalent. Okay, well, of course. Although I suppose maybe that's almost a definition of ambivalent, isn't it? Yeah, not like, commenting. I don't really care, so I'm going to write and tell everybody. Yes, Microsoft Edge on Linux. Now, I've actually been using it for ages. It's been around in developer version and then in beta version. And then it just so happened that a week or so ago, I was looking at the Microsoft packages server. So just manually went to where the Linux packages are stored for Edge, just to see if there was an update for my developer build. And there, right at the bottom of the list, this is Thursday night last week, I noticed that there's a long list of beta releases, a long list of dev releases, and right at the bottom, Microsoft-Edge-Stable-95.0. So finally, after all this work, converting Edge to run on the Chromium browser core, it's been out for Windows for some time. It's now the standard browser in Windows, of course, is the Chromium-based Edge. Same on Mac. And now even Linux users can join the club. It is quite astonishing how many flames I seem to have managed to fan while simply presenting an objective fact. Yeah, don't kill the messenger, everybody. <laughs> and they're not charging I'm you a... for it. It's available. You don't have to download it. Yeah. I, I must say I quite like having two browsers that I, that I can use at the same time because obviously 
Firefox and Edge. They have a different way of storing cookies. They have a different way of doing everything. In fact, on Linux, Firefox and Edge, they have different TLS code. They have different JavaScript engines. They have different browser rendering engines. And that means that if you're logged in on one, you can't accidentally be logged into the same site in the other. So I find it quite nice to have two different browsers. So I was quite delighted, but some people thought, how on earth, this is terrible. One commenter, what did he write? A chap called Eric, he wrote on Naked Security. Great, now I can install it to immediately uninstall it. Exclamation point. You're thinking, yeah, tell us how much you hate Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> Mm. So it seems a little unreasonable. And somebody asked, I think it was on Facebook, said, well, who asked for this? No one asked for Edge. You're thinking, well, I don't think anyone asked for Google Chrome either. But we got it, and it rapidly became the most popular browser in the world to the point that Google Chrome is apparently used by an absolute majority of Linux desktop users, even though... It's not even an open source browser itself. So no one asked for, for Chrome. Seems like a good idea that we got it because choice is good. So I was surprised to see so many Linux people coming out and kind of being against choice. And it's almost like it doesn't matter how lovely Microsoft becomes. It doesn't matter how nice they might be. They can't do anything to make up for the fact that people wanted to hate them in the 1990s. I guess I don't have to feel sorry for them. Being the biggest company in the world by market capitalization, I guess they can fight their own battles. But for me, I'm quite glad that there is another credible choice for a browser because I don't think it does any harm at all. Not everybody likes doing things exactly the same way. And if you look at how many Linux distros there are out there, kind of surprised that there wasn't a little more equanimity in the Linux community. I suppose haters going to hate, Doug. That is what they that, say, yeah. But yeah. the the more the merrier when it comes to uh, legitimate usable web browsers. So that that is called Microsoft Edge finally arrives on Linux. Official build lands in repos on nakedsecurity.sophos.com, and it is time for our oh no of the week. This is a listener submitted oh no. Naked Security Podcast listener Guillermo writes. I work at a large multinational company as an IT engineer, doing many different things, including level three troubleshooting. A colleague from a different department came to me with a strange ticket. He had been talking with a user who said that his keyboard just went bananas. He even sent us a video showing what was happening. <laughs> bananas. That word doesn't work except in American English, does it? We said, oh, it went bananas. Yeah. It doesn't sound as dramatic as when you say it. Oh, no, it's <laughs> bananas. bananas. So I'm hoping that was the actual description on the ticket. So although his main language is Spanish... <laughs> <laughs> the keyboard was writing random words in English that made no sense one with the other in whatever text field he clicked on. Several colleagues and myself had a look, and we had no idea what was going on. Was this a virus or unauthorized access? And if so, why are the supposed hackers writing random words without meaning? If it's a faulty keyboard, why is it typing full words? We were about to call in an exorcist. <laughs> when I... We were about to call in an exorcist when I thought I had realized what was going on. I asked the user to press the Windows key and H, and the problem was expelled immediately. He asked me what the key combination did, and I explained that that's how you activate the voice-to-text functionality of Windows 10. So what was happening was that the system was listening to what the user was speaking with his colleagues in Spanish, but typing in English what it thought it had heard. 
because he was connecting remotely to a remote server, he wasn't seeing the warning notification that pops up at the top of the screen when you activate voice to text. It's a tiny little bar at the top of the screen, which if you're remoting in would be covered by your little remote bar that lets you close your remote session. So good times had by all by the ghosts inside the computer. <laughs> That's quite bizarre, isn't it? Yeah. So I guess it only when he's only when he's in a text field and he's starting to type. And I I presume if if it had been hearing him in Spanish and coming back in Spanish, then he would have realised that it was it was <laughs> as he was complaining more and yep. more vociferously and using ruder and ruder words. It was copying him. He probably mm -hmm. figured it out. But I'd love to know what sense giant air quotes again it was making in English of what he was saying in Spanish. Yeah. Well, it was bananas. Well, thank you, Guillermo, for sending that in. And if you have an oh, yeah. no, you'd like su to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That is our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure.